I initially thought that when I was spent a few weeks measuring hex keys for an article with the previous publication. <laughs> um, <laughs>
that tells me that the company is pointed in the right direction and the rest of their products are also going to be things that I would be interested in, right? And I think that they have a better chance of getting there if they leave some of the other stuff behind. So heads up, Kelly, they do actually make it. Well, actually, I don't know if it ever made it to market, but they, they, they were supposed to make an open pro rim yeah, yeah. with their, uh, with, with their, with that excellent mm-hmm. sidewall and, you know, tubeless and everything. And I actually built up a set that I have here that you cannot have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Exolith ones ever made it to for sale. I don't know if I would want the Exolith yeah, ex- ones anyway, but that's kind of my point is like, yeah. I don't necessarily, I don't they're think I'd want They're still kind of narrow and everything. Yeah, and that's what I mean. It's like they're, they're, they weren't fully, if I'm shopping around for all the, you know, if I want if I want a custom wheel set, if I want Zach here to build me a custom wheel set for my mosaic, if I'm shopping around, I want, deep down inside, I want Mavic to, per, to have a product that I want to buy. Because I like Mavic and it has a ton of history, and I would love to have that as as my wheels, as, as the rim that I build a wheel set around. But at the moment, even even the new Open Pro, and I I never they, got my hands on one. They do have a couple carbon rims. I think they're still called an Open Pro, but they're not really an Open Pro because it's carbon. I don't want carbon. But they make some pretty sweet carbon rims that they sell individually now as well. That I would be okay with. My point yeah, is if totally. you if you make your if you make your sort of. It doesn't have to be the marquee product, but sort of like your sole product. If that product is really good and in line with what people want, I think it's a good sign yeah. for the rest of your company. And I think that that is more likely to happen when you're not also making helmets. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, this is this is definitely not the same thing, but like I think about I think about like, you know, you know, Andrew over at King Cage. I mean, the guy makes what three or four products or something. And granted, mm-hmm. he's like a, you know, one and one and a half, like two person show or something over there. So you know, very much not the same thing, not the same level of engineering required, but he makes basically one or two items that are widely regarded as being among the best in the industry that have an incredible cult following. And he's been able to be successful at that thing for a really long time. Whereas again, back in the day, Mavic was like the pre-built wheel company. If you wanted kind of cutting edge stuff and you didn't didn't necessarily want something that was custom built by by someone in a shop um and then they kind of just you know decided to chase the money and started doing all this other stuff that i feel like they never put nearly as much investment into and never had nearly as much success in either yeah and it never felt genuine in a lot of ways i I would say that some of their most recent soft goods started to be quite good actually i never personally got yeah. on with their shoes I, th- I thought they were kind of a weird shape but like they made a decent helmet and then you know they made some some really interesting like gravel kit i remember going to a launch in perpignan uh speaking of being flown all over the place for random things went to a launch in perpignan and, and that, you know this stuff was great like they used a lot of merino wool and the, the cuts were good and things like that they, they were starting to figure it out but yeah, it just never. It took it them never a really f- long time. Yeah, though. but you're yeah. a real company, right? It never <laughs> felt like Mavic to me. Like you know, yeah. I, I could well, see Mavic going into other hard goods. I could see them doing handlebars and stems and things like that. But like, I, I didn't necessarily. I wasn't looking for soft goods from from that yeah. particular. The brand. soft goods was just um, was their parent company pushing that on them. You know, the parent company had a number of leading outdoor brands like uh, you know, stuff I had Solomon was one. Uh, so they were literally just grabbing known technology and known resources from you know the ski industry and stuff and just applying it to the mavic brand so um yeah you know now that that's out of the way um it will be interesting to see mavic refocus unfortunately they did lose a significant portion of their staff right was it like a 50 percent reduction with all of this Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I, I think that's those are the numbers that I have seen, which is extremely disappointing, which is also kind of surprising considering, you know, talking to someone who used to work at Mavic that I know, um, they had said that, you know, oftentimes when a French company is sold and bought by another French entity or something that, you know, the French government, the French government, essentially, they want some guarantees in place that the that the staff are not going to be let go, that there is going to be a, a very high level of retention for for the current employees. And and I, I have to wonder if this sort of thing was allowed purely because there were no other options. It was either retain half of them or retain none of them, I wonder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's super yeah. unfortunate. So, yeah. I think some of the losses were outside of France as well. But uh, what actually surprised me was the head count to begin with. I think it was about 120 people, which seems small. Well, no, I think I, th- I thought the head count was like, you know, they had 240-ish something and they were going to keep 120. Oh, Okay. Which kind of makes more sense if you think about it, because I mean, if you if you think about what they produced and you know the the you know the offerings that they had in their catalog, I mean, it was even though they were starting to diver- to diversify, it really it was still fairly small as far as you know what their total catalog was. I mean, yeah. They didn't really have a ton of a ton of stuff. It wasn't like there was a specialized or something like that. Right. Mm. Yeah, I got so, I got a bunch of buddies at Mavic because I spent some time living in Annecy, which is where they're headquartered and. I hope everyone's okay. I should check in with everybody. Yeah, there's some there's some really good people that work there, and uh, including a lot of people that work in the hard goods and things like that. That, that should hopefully be should hope hopefully be all right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mavic had this reputation of being a little bit traditional, and I feel like they were starting to turn that around in the last few years. And you know, in some ways, I kind of view them like Shimano in the way that you know they may not always have the best concept or you know the idea for something that they have to, you know that they want to put into market it may not always be totally on point with with what's trending at the moment um but it's like whatever they decide to to, to bring to market i guess with the exception of that ftsl freeha body which was horrible um <laughs> but um but for the most part as far as like you know the wheel construction and everything goes i feel like they kind of like like engineer the crap out of it and they researched the crap out of a lot of stuff they did i mean i visited their facility a couple times over the years and I, I don't remember seeing that level of attention to detail and research in any other wheel facility. I mean, let's 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 keep in mind here that that's part of the reason why they were off the back a bit, right? Is because when a lot of these trends really started to to show up, you know, tubeless stuff and wide rims and things like that, they were very reticent to just jump on that bandwagon without having done all of the research and engineering. And frankly, they were they were looking at other at other companies' products and saying no, 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 like you, we're not going to do it that way and you shouldn't do it that way and you shouldn't ride it. You shouldn't ride this stuff. I mean, I literally had Mavic engineers tell me that. And so there is, you know, kudos to them in some ways and that they did stick to their guns and they, and they said, like, until we can figure this out, we're not going anywhere with this stuff. And, and again, to their credit, like their tubeless system is good and it works and UST has been around forever and is like an actual standard and you know I think that there is actually things that the rest of the industry could learn from Mavic in a lot of ways yeah and the 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 sad irony is that you know Mavic was I think probably the last major wheel manufacturer to 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 jump onto the road tubeless bandwagon and like you said Kelly I mean their system I've used it before it 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 is I would say the best out there as far as a wheel and tire package I mean I can install the tires by hand I can remove them by hand without tire levers and they inflate really easily with a floor pump um but the irony is that, you know, there is an update to the ETRTO rim and tire standard that's coming out in about the next 12 to 18 months or so. And from everything that I've seen and from the people that I've talked to, 
um, there is going to be a standard written in there for Rode Tubeless, and the standard that essentially came out on top for everything that was evaluated was basically Mavic's Rode UST system. So they were last to the market with that, and it turns out they were you know, seemingly the best one, and they're the, you know, it's their design that's going to come out on top, and yet because they were so slow to adapt, they are unfortunately the ones who have kind of fallen by the wayside and are struggling to, to survive, really. Yeah, last of the market on road tubers, but first of the mountain bike, right? So UST very much so, first of the mountain bike. Yeah, yeah, UST was super. I mean, UST showed up when I was still like you know putting electrical tape around rims and mm-hmm. trying to build them up high enough that the tire yeah. would inflate yeah, <laughs> and hopefully stay stay attached. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe yep. maybe this is maybe this is going to end up being a good thing then. Maybe this is the beginning of of a new dawn for Mavic and some some refocusing on the things that actually matter and they can use this excellent engineering and and the things that they've proven that they can do and become what they always should have been. Fingers well, crossed. I have very very high hopes for Mavic, not even just for sentimental reasons, but I do legitimately think that they have a lot to offer in terms of product. So, uh we at Cycling Tips wish you well, Mavic, and hopefully we'll see some good things to come in the next few months, so we'll find out. And we're hiring a tech writer if anybody needs a job. <laughs> we are hiring tech writer. I, I was going to mention that later. Mention that a little bit later, Kaylee. You kind of we can know, come back to it. the party a little bit. We here. can come back to it. Okay, we will come back to that. Okay. Um, in, other, in other big news, uh, I mean, I guess sort of negative news, I guess, um, Garmin was recently the uh, the the victim of a pretty major cyber attack by a Russian malware group, um, and they were you know, basically they were being held hostage for ten million dollars. And at this point, we still don't know if they actually paid that ransom, do we? Uh, it, it remains unclear. Uh, there is a fantastic story up on the site right now, written by our own Matt Denif. Um, he was contacted actually by a Velo Club member, a guy who is who works with an, uh, an Israeli IT security company who kind of walked Matt through exactly what happened and how Garmin might have gotten out of it, actually how they did get out of it, um, or at least are starting to get out of this thing. Uh, but it's it's still unclear whether they paid whether they paid that ransom. There are some concerns with that around the U.S. Treasury Department and some of the rules they have in place because this the the group behind this ransomware attack which is literally called evil corporation can't really get much more which is a great name by the way yeah great name if if you're branding yourself as a real bad group of people evil evil corp great great branding but so evil corp uh is was slapped with a bunch of sanctions by the u.s treasury department um after a series of these ransomware attacks that i think did like 100 million plus in damage um and so you can't send them money. Like you, you can't send money to a sanctioned entity, according to the U.S. Treasury Department. And you know, Garmin could maybe figure out how to do that through some sort of subsidiary, or I don't, I, you know, there's I'm sure there's just many intricacies in the law there. But sort of on paper, anyway, they would run into issues if they tried to just hand Evil Corporation a check for ten million dollars, which I imagine they didn't really want to do anyway. Um, but yeah, according to this story that that Matt wrote, it does sound like they. Um, they kind of rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up. They had a bunch of, you know, offline backups, and they went into full-on crisis mode, and they're slowly getting everything back online now. I mean, if I were someone at Evil Corp and I had hacked into Garmin and they had managed to figure out a workaround so that they didn't have to pay me, 
I would almost feel kind of personally slighted and I would probably try and hack them again because I would want my money. Probably. <laughs> even though it's, yeah. even though it's not really my money. I mean, it wouldn't really be my money. I mean, that's obviously a very criminal entity and bad thing to do, but I, I would feel kind of slighted. I mean, you got to pay for your but layer, I, like evil cave layer somehow. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I, don't, cave I, under I the volcano. Really yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't looked. I haven't really looked into Evil Corp. But like, do they have a logo or something? Like, like, do they do merchandising? Like, how? Like, are they registered? Doctor Evil. It's is just Doctor Evil from, from Austin <laughs> yeah. Powers. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, they, they probably don't. They probably don't pay taxes. I'm guessing. Uh I'm gonna guess not. Seems unlikely. I'm guess they're not real big tax folks. Yeah. No, it's. The 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 way that the uh, that Evil Corp got in was actually they sort of. They tricked somebody at Garmin into clicking a link that said it was going to update their Chrome browser, and that is what ended up downloading the whole thing and setting off the everything. So, so don't click yeah, any links you've got to ever think again. That Garmin, don't click links. Yeah, yeah you, you've got to think that Garmin probably knows who that employee is. Probably, I bet. The, well, I don't know. Like, if everything just got locked, they may have no idea sort of where it started <laughs> or where it came from. <laughs> so, true. That's true. That's true. Well, you have so, all that data so maybe is that now person's... encrypted. You know, uh, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a pretty wild man. What weird times we live in. One one of the things that um, this guy Orem, who is the the, the source uh, for Matt's story, um, one of the things he said at the very end of the story was basically like this is going to happen to every major corporation. Like there's kind of no way around it. And, you know, Garmin will recover and so will everybody else. But this is a really good reason why, you know, why you keep offline backups and why you do all these other sort of security things. And I am certainly no uh, IT security expert, so I won't try to use any of the real big words because I'll get them wrong. But yeah, you know, do, do the basics and kind of expect major companies to get hit by this stuff. Uh, and another good reason for all of us, you know, pay very close attention to what you're clicking on and change passwords on a regular basis and use good passwords. Don't use the same password for all of your things, for example. And, and, and keep and- a USB <laughs> cable around so you can still upload your rides to Strava when, when oh, things yeah. happen. And That's really and the, the other key news, point here. <laughs> yeah. And and in other other news, everyone here at Cycling Tips is now, from from this point forward, literally going to be phoning it in we're like none of our computers are going to be connected to the internet anymore. We are going to be picking up the phone and dictating our stories <laughs> to the person in the home office, and they're going to be typing it in. <laughs> the home office. What 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 home office are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question because we don't actually have a home office. No. So I I think people have this idea that Cycling Tips is kind of like you know like this super pro established brick and mortar entity, similar to Evil Corp. Least, yeah. You know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, also but, has a you cool know, We used to have a big office in Melbourne. Yeah. We used to have a big office in Melbourne, and now actually we all work remotely. So we don't actually have a well, yeah, I don't think we have an actual the, Australian home office anymore. The, the, like, there is, is, Wade, is it Wade's house? I believe there's still technically a shared space in Melbourne. Um, yeah, there is. They're just not using it. They just don't use it right down. now, obviously, because they can't. They're not allowed mm, yeah. to. But they were using it prior to coronavirus. So we've talked about having one here in Boulder, but uh, now we we work pretty well running around, you know, working from home. Working out of James's garage, working out of Zach's shop. That's yeah. where we are right now. I have we're an just... office. <laughs> Zach has an office. Yeah. <laughs> None yeah of you, us do, do. you do have an office, indeed. You do have an office that you have to go to every day, yeah. except Sunday and Monday. Yep. And sometimes Saturday. Yeah. Depends. Um, <laughs> indeed. His, the sign on his door now just says by appointment only because coronavirus. Because corona. <laughs> <laughs>
Because of the Rona. Yeah. Perfect. Well, in other news, moving on. Uh, specialized. I'm sure no one has noticed this at all. No. I'm, I'm, I'm sure no one's seen it. It's totally obscure. Wait, does Specialized have a new bike? No. <laughs> no. No. D- d- wait, do they? I missed that. It's a new fat bike. It's oh, the Tarmange. Okay. okay. Huh. Oh, right. The Tarmange. Right. The Tarmange SL7. Yep. Otherwise known as the, uh, well, I'm not really entirely sure how, like, I, I really want so, to back up a little bit. So, yes. I'm sure everyone listening to this already knows at this point, Specialized has a new generation of their tarmac, the SL7. Uh, it basically just sort of as the way as why well, hasn't anyone as, covered this? I know, crazy. <laughs> I've not seen any social media as, posts. <laughs> yeah, as Kaylee put it in his article, they basically took a, car, a tarmac and a vent and kind of like squished it together. Um, and there are a couple of things that really strike me about this bike. Uh, first and foremost, and I think. You know, all of the mechanics who are listening to this are going to be really happy to hear about this. Is that Specialized basically seems to be abandoning their OSBB, otherwise known as PressFit 30. Um, they seem to be abandoning PressFit bottom brackets pretty much entirely and moving back to English threads for the bottom bracket. As I put in my story, uh, I was told by Specialized that this is basically because they were tired of getting yelled at on the internet for not doing this, and so I just wanted I wanted to give a brief pat on the back to the people of the internet all of you out there for doing a great job, doing great work here. Important we won. work. We won. Yep, you won. And Specializes now has third bottom brackets. Very exciting. In their defense, I will say the last couple of years they've used BB30 with actual aluminum inserts. So they were pretty creek free, but big fan of threads as well. Now now threads are like a branding thing. It's yeah. like, it's like you can't have, you know, you can't have a bike that's that's not aero right now anymore, right? You can't have a bike that's not threaded i mean when 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 the cervello caledonia launched a little like was it last week that was like the number one comment on everywhere we put it was that they still they stuck with bb right right and it's a gorgeous bike and it rides really nice and i really like it but man i like i don't like that i I, and i just wish i just wish they'd gone with threads you know would have been nicer i'm a little surprised that that specialized didn't kind of brand it somehow like they could have called it like thread fit 68 or something yeah or like (laughs) Like changed it to they could have come 68.5 millimeters Oh, yeah, 60, no, no, or like a 67.5 like with a, like a little shim. A T43. <laughs> Just to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, I, w- I went on I a mean, bit of an I epic think... rant on the regular podcast this week about tools for bottom brackets. Oh, yeah. That was so I, I think I even swore in it. Like, yeah. And I told, I told I think Phil you, to leave. You may have. Yeah. I told Phil to listen leave to this. <laughs> I mean, I have like every. So, yeah. It's like every couple of weeks I have to buy a new bottom bracket tool because some new bottom bracket came out. So it's annoying. terrible. Yeah, T forty seven is pretty really bad like that. Yep. Um, so it's not just press fit stuff that is getting crazy with tools. Well, that that's kind of wanted. That's kind of one of the things I want to talk about in a little more depth here. And we touched upon this in the regular weekly pod, but you know, overall, I feel like moving to a threaded shell, and especially just a regular English threaded shell, is a really good move for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's. You know the way the way crankset development has has occurred in the last few years. You know you can basically run, uh, I think, nearly any crankset in an English threaded bottom bracket now, except with the exception of narrow format thirty mil spindles, which are kind of going away anyway. Um, so the compatibility thing is really just not an issue anymore. Uh, I mean, yes, a, a threaded setup is a little bit heavier than PressFit, and that was one of the reasons why PressFit came to be. But you know, most people at this point don't really care. But 
Threaded still isn't perfect, though. I mean, we are still going to have issues of, you know, creaking and bearing, premature bearing wear and that sort of thing. But it just seems like it's going to be a little bit less prevalent because it's going to be easier to, you know, install these bottom brackets properly and like, you know, face frames properly and kind of prepare things so that these things work, work right. I mean, Zach, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like you just pull it out and put some grease on it and throw it back in, right? Like that's all it is. And then you're done. And then you, like you can reuse the cups. And, like you can basically run them forever. Yeah, it's not a piece of plastic with a bearing pressed into it that you then press into the frame. Like that's not a recipe for success. <laughs> I feel like pressing things in general, if you're not a super confident mechanic, is just slightly terrifying, right? Like threading something in. We all get that. We all know how to unscrew the top of a bottle. Yeah. You know, threads got threads very well understood. Pressing things in. First of all, you need usually more tools. You need special presses. You need the press the, you know, the right size. All these different things, and you need to know what to what what you know lubricants or non. What's the opposite of lubricant? As retaining compound. retaining glue, compound. Basically. That's what I'm looking for. Retaining compounds <laughs> to use glue. Yeah, glue. Glue basically. Epoxy. Whatever you know, you you need to to know what what things to slather all over these all over these bottom brackets. It's just a much more you know, it's a scarier thing if you're if you're a home mechanic to be pressing something into your many thousands of dollars. Not just home mechanic. I've one of my favorite all time press in stories is I was at I can't remember where it was, one of the cross world cups in the US. There's a Belgian mechanic, as you do. Uh <laughs> he had a I can't remember what team it was, but a bike with a press in headset. He had a piece of wood and a hammer. <laughs> and it was hammering old school. The, yeah, old school. Hammering the headset into the frame. It was like this is sweet. Maybe he just didn't want to bring his entire freaking press across yeah. the Atlantic. But this is how I how I envision Kaylee installing the press bit things. <laughs> I will not deny that I have used the, the wood and hammer method previously in my darkest and days. By and by previously, you mean like last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I recently uh, swapped the rear shock on my mountain bike and I needed to change bushing out and I didn't just hit it with hammers until it came out. I brought it over here. Much, much and Zach, Zach just did it right before we started recording this podcast. I, I know oh, my I limitations. That. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you're really tempted uh, to use a hammer though. I was so tempted. I was like, oh man, I could just like stick it in between the slot and my deck and then stick a thing in the middle and then just whack it with a hammer. It would totally come out. But I stopped myself. Zach, Zach, did you did you believe his brakes too? Because I, I will also note that that uh, Kaylee did install his own brakes onto his new mountain bike they work fine and uh they didn't work last week very well <laughs> no they anyway. were fine they didn't work for like three minutes after i had tipped it up because there's definitely an air bubble in there somewhere but yeah i'll I've, take care of i've that. not blood his brakes yeah. <laughs> he can handle that okay okay anyway the other thing i wanted to talk about with this sl7 is the fact that you know it is this tarmac and vans thing squished together and even specialized was very very candid about the fact that they kind of don't really see much of a reason for the Venge to exist now. So, I mean, what do we think about this business move even? Just, the, you know, the fact that this new bike supposedly is so good that it almost renders their supposed top-end racing flagship obsolete. I mean, it seems like kind of a weird move, doesn't it? I think this is a really weird move, and I also think that they're wrong. I think, because I really like the Venge. I think it rides really, really well. I think that there's, you know, the SL7 felt a little bit snappier to me. It's really hard to say whether that's just like the wheels or something like that, because I didn't ride them back to back with the same wheels and with the same components and things like that. But 
I'm a little bit annoyed by this because I really like the Venge, and by specialized own omission, it, admission, sorry, it is still faster. The SL7, according to their graph, which is not particularly useful, and I asked for more information, but they didn't give it to me. Wind tunnel. Yeah, wind tunnel graph. It appears to be, if you sort of eyeball it, it appears to be about as aerodynamic as the old Venge, the Venge Vias, which is slower than the new Venge. So I don't know why they're taking a step back in aerodynamics. They basically explained it as our pro riders wanted a bike that quote-unquote rode like a tarmac. I've ridden, yeah. I've spent a lot of time on Avenge. I'm sorry. That bike is not going to slow you down going around corners. It's just not. It's the exact same geometry. It's super stiff. It rides really, really nice. I think some of this is maybe, it's, it's you know, it's the, it's the tail dragging the dog around. It's like the pro riders who don't, for whatever reason, didn't want to ride the Venge, even though it's faster because it's 100 grams heavier, even though their Venge was still 6.8 kilos. Yeah, it, like basically pulling Specialized back around toward the SL7 replacing the Venge. And granted, the SL7 is awesome bike. I wasn't, you know, when I reviewed this thing, I wasn't lying. I wasn't, you know, this bike is really good. It rides really well. It feels really fast. It feels just as, pretty much just as fast to me anyway as Venge. But I don't, I just still don't see the reason for, for getting rid of the Venge. I, I the think lineup. Specialized that just uh, strategically uh, sort of backed themselves in a corner with this one because they kind of detuned the Venge in the last update to make it very much an all-rounder bike. Uh, and then since then, the whole market has sort of shifted where everyone else's all-rounder bikes have sort of moved into that space where the Venge sits. You know, they've become more aero. They've become the, the do-it-all bike. And that kind of forced the Tarmac and Venge to overlap far too closely. And then in the end, they've probably just decided that the Tarmac is the stronger brand between the two. It's a stronger name. And that, you know, if you're going to have two overlapping bikes, just focus on the one that's going to sell better, which is the Tarmac. So it'll be oh. interesting to see where the Venge goes. I, 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 I don't think it's truly dead. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes back. Well, one thing I wonder, if you if kind of step back and look at how everything fits into the lineup... I mean, Kaylee, you asked Specialized this uh, this question when we did that special podcast with them, uh, talking about you know kind of diving deeper into the Venge, or sorry, diving deeper into the Tarmac development. You know, you had asked them sort of what a Venge would look like if they kind of ignored UCI rules, and the answer that we got from them was was a little weird. It, so, and it, it sounded like they had me... definitely thought about it, but didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> It, it, hmm. well, it, yeah, so and so we're going to talk about it here since they're not around. Um, but it 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 makes me wonder. I mean, Specialized has has demonstrated a willingness to ignore UCI rules on the shiv as far as for the triathlon version. I mean, they they knew they could make it faster for triathlon. They knew that the, the same rules didn't apply, so they went ahead and did it there. Um, you know, we know that the vast, vast majority of people buying these bikes are never, ever going to be subject to a UCI technical rule in a race. So what if they took the Venge and threw all the rules out the window and just tried to make the absolute most aero road bike they could? Because no one else really has bothered to do that. And it seems like if anyone's going to have the resources and the willingness to embark on that journey, it would be specialized. So like, what would that look like? And would it make sense? I mean, when we, the, the one sort of answer we did get to that question was from Cam Piper, who is the sort of, I guess, project manager or product manager behind the new SL7. And he basically said that with the, uh, what is it? The, the, the non-UCI shiv, right? 
the try one. the try one. The goal was to basically turn it into a sail so that at cur- at certain yaw angles it actually had zero drag, right? Which is a crazy thing to think about, but is possible at the right angles. And they're looking at stuff like okay, what you know, what are the what are the average yaw angles at stuff like Kona? Uh, they can kind of do those calculations a little a little bit more carefully. So I, I think it would be a lot tougher to do with a road bike which is going to see a more diverse array of wind conditions but i believe that that's probably what they would be trying to do is you know you end up with these sort of big long tube shapes that certainly catch the wind but do so in sort of a good way and do do so in a way that potentially propels you forward if you are on a non-uci legal venge road bike and you show up to your local crit or whatever race where there's not uci control so you can race the bike do you think everyone is going to be upset at you for having a bike that's not legal or like is more aero than it's supposed to be? Possibly. Like, will people, will people judge you for being on the line with a bike that's theoretically way too fast? Well, they'll judge you. And then if you're in the masters 45 plus, they'll all have one the next week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of them. (laughs) And then they go to nationals and can't race them. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I I think it's a fascinating thing to think about, right? Like in, in the tri world, and I said this in the special uh, Tarmac podcast that we did with them, like tubes just started disappearing, right? I mean, Zach, I'm always coming in your shop here. Yeah, you work yeah. on a lot of triathlon bikes and, you know, I'm always looking at these weird ass bikes with like, the ones I have no here, I'll have, I'll and, have all of the tubes. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking around right now that all the ones you have in, I yeah. mean, this, this felt one here, the seat tube is like six oh, yeah. plus inches deep. But yeah, they're like they're missing tubes. The 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 tubes are really long. I mean, you can very obviously you just have to look at them and be like, well, that that's definitely not UCI legal. And I think, I think that could be where the Venge is going. I mean, that's why I asked that question in that podcast. It was very much a leading question, right? I was trying to see what their answer would be, and I found their answer to be interesting. We shall see. We shall. I mean, see. we should just get a shiv and put drop bars on it. Call the Venge. I mean, Do it first. people, so when I was at the end of my collegiate cycling career, they made a rule that you couldn't run time trial bikes at nationals. So you had a team time trial that was super important for sort of the overall nationals medal count. And uh, so people would literally just put drop bars on yeah. TT bikes and they were sweet. Like they looked really, really yeah, cool. Like the old yeah. zip 1080s. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and granted, those were, those were UCI legal TT bikes, but even so, like they were just, I mean, this is sort of. This is also kind of before era road bikes were like fully a thing. This is like when the soloist was one of the only ones that was available. Uh, and all of a sudden you had, like I, I did it. I had a an old, was it a P2 or something? Is it the aluminum, the, like the last aluminum Cervelo TT bike? And I raced that at track nationals and road <laughs> nationals because <laughs> I had horizontal dropouts and I just stuck drop bars on it. And it was super <clears throat> fun and super fast. Yeah. That could maybe be yeah. a model for what we're looking at. Yeah, I had I had a very similar bike. I had a BMC Time Machine, the old uh, TT bike, um, set up the same way, single speed, uh, and drop bars. My my dumbest bike ever, but it was. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, like people people think that's going to handle really bad, right? Be- but then you actually look at the geometry of the bike, and a lot yeah. of them were basically I mean, just road geometry. Especially not the new, yep. like the Shiv UCI Legal one. That's basically a road geo. Yeah, the reason they handle bad yeah. is because this handlebars are stupid. That's the reason why TT yeah, bikes handle bad. Yeah. <laughs> But if you put a drop bar on it, it actually and now they have, ride pretty nice. have functioning brakes. And now they have brakes that work. I think mm-hmm. we've just invented a whole new category. People go out and put well, drop bars on your TT bikes. Fun fun little side story. I was actually in talks with Felt years and years ago about, uh, I can't remember what the name of their full-blown TT platform is now off the top but of my head. IA. Um, 
Yeah, the IA. Thank you. Uh, I actually was in talks with them for a while about doing like a full-on one-off road bike based on an IA. It was going to have. To, it was going to require like some weird custom stem and handlebar. It just rides so awful though. It prob. It probably would. I mean, well, yes, it would have ridden like, really terribly. Ruth had one but, of the. What was the the AR? That one, their aero road bike, the first yeah. gen ones. Yep. Oh, hated it. It just rode atrociously, it rode like, like a block rough. of wood. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. The first generation ones were not great for ride quality. Second generation <laughs> ones were a lot better. Anyway, your point, TT point bike would being, ride way better. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but point being, I mean, I you know I had had the idea a long time ago to to do that sort of thing because it would have been really interesting. I mean, again, like coming back to the original topic, Specialized has, you know, they've experimented with that sort of concept a lot. Um, they've definitely played around with that sort of idea a lot. And it just makes me wonder if it actually will come to market because I think a lot of people would buy that. Would I, don't know if a, I don't know if a lot of people would buy it, but I think some people would be very into it and it would be a very interesting way for them to push technological boundaries. Yeah. And I would see it almost the, as, as like a marketing effort. I would see a bike like that yeah. literally as like a, almost a loss leader, right? Like we're yeah. going to, we're going to spend a ton of money and a ton of time developing this bike so that we can, we can just go out and say, we have the fastest road bike you've ever seen by a lot. Go buy a tarmac. If, it's like that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> if, that. If hypothetically though, where, where I could see, you know, sitting, sticking with James's suggestion there is the Iron Man franchise, the Iron Man group is a massive, massive moneymaker. So if you could come into that and, you know, Specialized already, um, bit of a tangent, but the Cape Epic mountain bike race, Specialized dominates that race. I think they have about a 70 or 80% market share as far as people that enter that race ride a Specialized Epic. So if they could do a similar thing on the Ironman space with a road bike that, you know, the people doing these events could just have one bike that they could ride, you know, group rides and train on as a road bike and then put a clip-on handlebar on the front and have like a fully functioning, you know, like with, satellite shifters on the front there with you know electronic shifting i mean that could be a game changer bike that they could just overtake the market with yeah because i i would argue that most of the people who are who have bought venges to this point already don't really care that it's uci legal all they wanted was what they perceived to be the fastest available road bike that they could get their hands on so if you go on that premise that they didn't care about uci legality then if Specialized or whoever really were to come out with a road bike that just, you know, tossed all the rules away and made something that was measurably faster, then I think, like, again, I think that would have a, a, at least a reasonable amount of market appeal. And even if it was only kind of a, a psychological effect or like, you know, okay, like, like you were saying, if it was like a loss leader sort of thing, it, it would make me wonder if other companies would follow suit. I, I, I could very much see that. I mean, it didn't take long for once major sort of road racing oriented brands started realizing that there was this whole tri market out there and that they could build bikes just for them and they didn't have to just take the world tour bike and give it to triathletes i mean it was within a couple of years and all of a sudden every single bike brand was doing that and then a whole bunch of new bike brands like there's a you know well not not new but small bike brands in the road space there's a cantana Roo sitting right in front of us for example uh you know pop up and suddenly have uh, quite a bit of market share within this totally separate bike space Hmm. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But, you know, again, just kind of makes me wonder. But moving on to bikes that you can actually buy, um, you know, a lot of us are still under various levels of lockdown or some kind of, you know, modified existence kind of orders at the moment. Um, but one consistent and 
really, in hindsight, quite surprising theme of this whole coronavirus pandemic has been, you know, widely reported booms in bike business. And again, like this hasn't been universal. It's not like every shop and every company has, has just been killing it at the moment. But, um, you know, looking at how things are now, you know, there have been without a doubt, a lot of increased business in the bike industry overall. And uh, I actually recently had a very interesting conversation with a market researcher from Bank of America. His name is Rafe Jadrovich. Uh, sorry, his name is Rafe Jadrovich. Um, and you know, he and I had a conversation the other day because he, again, had done a bunch of research into this, basically to, to help give guidance to their investors. And, you know, I think that conversation is worth a listen because it paints really a pretty decently rosy outlook for the years ahead for the bike industry. So let's give that a listen. So I'm Rafe Jadrasic. Um, I'm a director in equity research at uh, Bank of America. I cover the um, it's the active lifestyle supply chain is, is what, what we call it. So it's mostly athletic and fo athletic footwear and apparel uh, manufacturers, but it also includes a lot of the, the bike companies that are primarily um, based out of uh, Taiwan. So I think it's safe to say that when everything started with this pandemic, no one really knew what to expect. And and certainly in the cycling industry, we absolutely did not know what to expect. Um, I think a lot of people were expecting the worst, certainly, for business to just take a nosedive. Um, but, you know, in the course of everything that's been happening, one, I guess, bright spot in the cycling industry has been, you know, we certainly have seen a lot of anecdotal evidence that there has been this bike boom. I mean, inventories are low. Bike shops are super busy. Uh, a lot of people are riding. We're seeing a lot of people who are new to riding out there as well. Um, but according to your research, I mean, all this anecdotal stuff that we're seeing is actually backed by the data that you have pulled. Is that correct? Absolutely. So what, what the, the industry, there's not a lot of great retail data for the industry, um, particularly you know, in, in the U.S. you have MPD um, and then in Europe, there really isn't, isn't much. So what's been great about having access to um, being able to use credit card data is it's given us a view on the U.S., the current U.S. retail trends. Um, and, and what we saw was uh, that um, May actually, the, the data for May was up over uh, 100% year over year um, at retail. Um, that was after a up 60% um, in, uh, in April. And then we've seen a, a slight moderation in, in June, still tracking up above 60%. Uh, but I think our view is that a, a lot of the moderation is more related to out of stocks at retail, right, that, that you're finding a lot of retailers don't have inventory left, and that's what's causing the slowdown rather than, than a decrease in, in demand. Do you have any sense as to what is causing this increase in demand? I, I, I think that there's a, a few factors. Um, uh, the, the, the first is that is the consumers, um, a, a lot of activities that they would normally be spending um, time and money on, they, they can't do right now. Um, so think about traditional entertainment, like uh, going on, on vacations, going on a cruise, um, uh, going to the movies, to going to a sporting event. A lot of these things where people were spending time and money, they, they can't do anymore. Um, so we think that's, that's a, a big driver to it. Where you've seen the biggest surge in demand is in entry-level price points um, and also kids' bikes. 
Um, and a lot of kids are they're either not in school or they can't go to camp, which they normally would do. So that, that, that's been a, a shift of, of families trying to find um, kind of healthy activities to, to, to do together. Um, and then there's also some, some underlying elements that we think have a little bit more sustainability longer term where um, like there's a more focus on health and exercise and being able to do it in an environment that's socially distant uh, and biking is perfect for that. Um, and then longer term, we could see a little bit of a shift uh, in terms of commuting trends, right? If people want to avoid public transportation after this, um, an e-bike might be a great way to do that. So. Um, there, there's some secular trends that are helping to drive us in addition to some near-term um, uh, just changes in consumer uh, behavior. Are you seeing any growth? <clears throat> are you seeing growth in other areas of cycling as well? I mean, because, you know, like for, for the cycling tips audience, for example, I mean, it is typically a, like a very enthusiast, pretty high-end market. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, again, anecdotally speaking, we people have certainly noticed the, the uptick in entry-level cycling, but are you seeing an uptick at the op opposite end of the scale as well. Yeah, we, so the, the, the increase in demand is less dramatic at the, at the higher price points and the more performance enthusiast categories. Um, but, but mountain bikes are doing uh, very well. Uh, the fastest, probably the best selling e-bikes right now actually are mountain bikes, um, which is a, a positive sign for, for the industry, right? That you're having people looking at it, um, that you're having consumers either enter the category or upgrade in the category um, in uh, for, for recreation, which we think is it will be a little bit more sticky rather than people going out and buying kids bikes. That's probably not something that you'll be able to anniversary next year. Um, so we've seen a lot of momentum um, in gravel. Um, Mountain is doing really well. The, the only category that has sort of lagged and it's it's benefited, but just not nearly as much as the other categories is um, like high performance road bikes um, uh, continues to lag in the, in the industry, which has been a trend over the last couple of years, years as well. Right. I mean, that, that's certainly not a surprise to hear from my end because uh, yeah. I mean, that that segment of the market was already a little bit slow anyway. So right. um, long term, I mean, you said that you are you pulled a lot of this research to. Uh, basically be able to give some sort of informed opinion to to investors. Um, now, I guess just to back up a little bit, I mean, this data is, is this data is just for the U.S. only or this is worldwide? This is U.S. only. Okay. US only. How do these trends correspond? Well, if, assuming that you've looked at it otherwise, do you have any sense as to whether these trends correlate to what other countries are seeing? It's been, so if you look at it more, going back to some of the anecdotal signs that, that, we're, that we're seeing, um, it, it seems like the U.S. is aligning with a lot of what, what we've heard about um, from channel checks in, in Europe. I think the, the way the, um, the market played out is a little bit different. Uh, in Europe, you actually had the, the bike retailers had to close. Um, in, while in the U.S., they were able to stay open as essential services. Um, so... I, you, you, you referenced the, the surprise in demand. I think in Europe that even played out more because the stores were actually closed and when they reopened, there were lines outside the, the, the door. So um, you've had a little bit of a different dynamic uh, in, in terms of Europe, but the inventory levels are still very low. I think in both the US and, and Europe, we're down to uh, weeks of inventory versus where you normally would have three or four months. Um, so it, it's been pre pretty consistent. 
Um, in markets like uh, like J Japan, you've seen better demand, uh, but not necessarily the, the inventory shortages that you're seeing um, in, in, in Europe and, and the US. Um, China, we've seen that demand has improved, but it's at a different uh, different price points, right? So that a little bit more accessible price points for, for, for that consumer. Um, but it's been the, the demand acceleration has definitely been a global trend. Okay. Um, I mean, we, we've seen surges in bicycle popularity, you know, periodically over the years. Um, and, you know, like one in particular, certainly for, for the U S was, you know, during the whole Lance Armstrong era, there was a big uptick in road cycling. Um, a lot of attention in, in that sort of uh, in that segment of the market, you know that that uptick, however, wasn't really wasn't really long term. It didn't really have a ton of staying power. So, do you have a sense as to whether or not this time around will be any different? And if so, uh, why would it be different? So there are I, uh, our view is that there will be aspects of this that are. Um, similar to prior booms um and it's 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 at that entry level price point and kids we think as you go into 2021 um the first half the that those will those trends will will fade um bikes are very durable and they don't have a fast replacement especially re replacement cycle especially if it's not if you're not focused on the performance of it that much and, and you're just using it for for leisure um, where we think uh, the, the the signs that that we will be looking for to see if this is a sustainable trend um, will be momentum at the higher price points um, and uh, at the the more like you referenced earlier like the enthusiast and um, recreational side of it um, where you're seeing a lot more innovation um, and going into before the the COVID. Uh, before COVID started to drive this this recent demand surge, there actually were some positive tailwinds to the bike industry, like especially in e-bikes, where you saw innovation um, to pick up adoption, um, and, and you you were seeing some positive trends in the U.S. on on the e-bike side, which had been lagging in Europe. So um, if if you uh, if this serves as a catalyst to get um, higher e-bike adoption or um, introduces new consumers to some of the more like higher end recreation categories. Uh, we think that side of it could be could be more sustainable so longer term. We have some sense of scale. I mean, do you, do you have a sense of just sheer numbers as far as how many new entry level cyclists are in the U.S. now? I mean, how many people maybe have bought a bike for the first time in quite a while? So it's it, it's a little bit difficult to to quantify. Um, it, it's difficult to, to quantify from, from our perspective right now. Uh, I think the, the another a good way to, to look at it would be um, you've had more uh, bikes sold in the first uh, five months of the year than you sold all of the previous year, um, and the vast majority of those are going to to first time to first time users. Okay. Um, so. I think a lot of the the entry level and everything, it's it's almost all of them are coming in at, at, as uh, first time um, uh, users that are entering the market. Okay, gotcha. I've been sort of following the bike industry, I guess, for for quite a while now. I guess you know, two plus decades now that I think about it, which is kind of yeah. a little scary. Um, but I mean, it, I, I would say, from my opinion, that the bicycle industry kind of has this. It kind of falls back on this habit of trying to innovate its way into increasing market share or increasing the number of cyclists in general. Um, 
but it ha- it does have it has always seemed to me that especially at the lower end for people to really you know get introduced to cycling and then progress from there and stick with it that i mean as you mentioned it really does require this sort of infrastructure support so that people ultimately feel like they are safe and ha- have a, a safe and secure place to ride this bike that they've been introduced to so barring that and given how long it often takes for municipalities to introduce infrastructure to their to their networks do you have any sense as to how likely any of this stuff might be to actually happen or do you have a sense as to what the time scale might be for it to, to actually retain some of these people so there there was definitely a movement even before covid to to get some of these um investments in place and you saw some regulation change and that, that would be another difference between europe and, and the us would be some of the regulation differences um they've lacked some of the rules around like riding e-bikes on trails and things like that 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 are tend to be stricter in the u.s and probably um press some of the, the what, you, what you would normally get in terms of, of e-bike penetration um and if, if you even again before COVID, there were some movements in some larger cities that hadn't yet um invested in, in infrastructure like like new york i uh, i if you the uh, as you get a shift towards more work from home uh this is a really good way for some cities um to to help commuters that that might be hesitant to coming back into the city uh there, there's a really there's a um incentive to the cities that they didn't have in, in the past and and this is a pretty dramatic change um in the way people are are, are living their life and um it, this isn't something that's going to be a, a short-term impact and, this is a relatively affordable way to um, to improve your infrastructure and and reduce traffic compared to other uh, other ideas. So um, we think there, there's a lot of reasons why uh, cities cities should do it. And if if you look at um, certain places have already done it, um, have made the investments, and it, it would be places cities that you would expect, like like a Boulder, Colorado, or or um, like a Berkeley or something. So what we needed to happen is in some of the, the, the larger cities, but there definitely is a, a, a large push from, from consumers for this to happen. And we think there's growing momentum behind it. Sort of the, 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 the literal million dollar question I have for you, I think we can probably wrap it up from there. Um, you know, so, so based on your research, based on Bank of America's outlook here, what, what's, what's, the, what's the prognosis? What, what do you recommend to people who are in, looking to invest? Do they, do they buy or sell? Like, what, how, does, how does the cycling industry look from your perspective? Um, so so uh, like we, we can't, um, I can't comment on specific uh, um, stocks right now on, on, uh, for, for, for this interview, but our, our view for the industry is we have a very positive view for the industry. Um, both in the, the the near term, but then in the in- intermediate term. And what what our view is that because you have very low inventory levels, um, we think the trend continues, right? If um, so, even though you've had a, a huge surge in demand, um, the the we think the the sell the restocking of bikes will continue to drive um, really strong sales for, for a lot of the, 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 the brands and um, um, in industry participants. So we, the industry ha- has a, a long way to go. We don't think you're really gonna have um, 
normalized inventory levels until you get to the first half of actually 2021. Uh, because the supply chain is so far behind in, 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 in keeping up with the demand. So we see an extended period here where you have really, uh, really elevated revenue growth um, before you see a moderation next year. And then um, beyond that, there's some, some healthy secular trends that are, that are um, going on on, uh, on um, e-bikes, um, on some of the higher performance segments, uh, particularly mountain bikes. So we, we think it's, it's a trend that, that, that's here to last with uh, a, a pretty sustainable near-term surge. Okay, that's really good, good to hear. Uh, yeah. Rafe, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And certainly, uh, you know, thanks to Bank of America for, I guess, assigning you this task of looking into this because uh, <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of good information in there. Um, and, you know, I guess, fingers crossed for a rosy future. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me, James. All right. So the basic message that came out of that is that, you know, yes, there is absolutely measurably huge growth in the bike industry overall. But the thing that really made me most interested about this conversation was the fact that, uh, Rafe basically said that the biggest growth was at the entry level of the market. There are a whole bunch of people riding bikes and buying bikes now that either, you know, had never bought bikes before, or at least hadn't bought bikes in a really, really long time, which, you know, to me indicates that there is huge, huge potential for cycling in general and the cycling industry to finally grow our sport substantially. Which is awesome, which is super exciting. And I, you know, we obviously we don't have access to some of the like internal data and a lot of the rest of the industry but purely on our own data like we've seen a huge uptick in interest in entry level bike tech stories so if you take cycling tips traffic and you extrapolate that out to the entire industry this this totally makes sense to me and it is it's really exciting because if we can if we can manage to turn all these people that are buying entry level bikes into lifelong cyclists we just grew the whole you know, we just grew the whole pool. We, we made the, the whole pie bigger, right? And that's that's really exciting if you're anybody even tangentially related to the bike industry or even if you're just a cyclist because I think the more bikes on the roads, the better for all of us, right? I guess the, the fear that I have though, and I, and I raised this question with Rafe, I mean, he... You know, he's certainly not in a position to necessarily influence public policy exactly, but, um, you know, people who are just getting into riding bikes, the thing that they are most fearful about when they are riding bikes is, well, one, they're afraid of flat tires. Um, but two, the thing that they're most intimidated by is basically mingling in traffic, getting hit by a car and, you know, having a safe place to ride this, this bike that they just got into and just bought. Um, you know, he, he is optimistic. I mean, I asked him at the end of the interview and he, you know, he did have a pretty rosy projection for how things were going to go. Um, but he was saying that a lot of this is going to be reliant on municipalities backing up this rise in ridership with increased infrastructure so that all of these citizens who are now getting into riding bikes have somewhere to use them and where, you know, where they, where they feel safe actually riding bikes for errands and going to work and that sort of thing. What do we think is the likelihood of that actually happening though? And I guess, you know, I guess I'm more curious in, you know, the views of Kaylee and Zach, mainly just because, you know, you guys were in the U S because I've got a pretty cynical view of yeah. that myself. Not going to happen here. Yeah, no, no. People love their SUVs too much. Yeah, and I just, you know, 
like we live in a, in a theoretically very bicycle friendly area and I, th- I think in the grand scheme of things it is but at the same time it's not at all at the same time you know we got separated bike lanes on a couple of roads and then they took them away three months later because a couple people complained you know and, and like so now I ride down that road and I'm in a nice protected bike lane and then poof, it's gone. And all of a sudden I'm with traffic going 40 miles an hour. And, you know, if I was new to cycling, I would not do that. If I was riding with a kid, I wouldn't let them ride that section of road. And, you know, we're talking about Boulder here, like the, the you know, the bike mecca of North America. We always like to pretend we are. <laughs> if we are like that and if, if our city council is that gutless, then you know where yeah. what what hope does the rest of at least the US what hope does the rest of the of the US have i'm i am also quite uh, yeah. uh cynical skeptical on that front yeah thankfully things are better elsewhere in the world um there are definitely uh investments in infrastructure happening as a reaction to the growth um that they're seeing over the last few months yeah so sorry oh i was going to say I, I have a i have a friend who lives in paris who actually listeners of our tour de france episodes will recognize josh robinson he works for the wall street journal in paris and um actually one of our own velo club members recently reached out to him because he works for the city of london and and was talking to josh about all the things that paris is doing right now because uh, the mayor there is super pro bicycle she's shutting down all kinds of roads for bikes there is at the moment no plan to open them back up for cars and so yeah there are other places in the world that are sort of figuring this out and getting it and understanding that if you give people the space that to feel safe that they'll stay on bikes and that's better for everybody i'm just not particularly confident about the the good old us of a on yeah. this front <laughs> and usa us yeah. here even if we had better infrastructure i feel like you're inevitably still going to be on roads with traffic and having ridden other places in the world like most other places the drivers are more courteous like hey you're outside i'm going to give you room and not run you over here people are like i have this big truck and i'm going to see how close i can get to you while texting <laughs> yeah while texting it's great uh, freedom so yeah mm-hmm. you know I, I think i'm there's a lot to be optimistic about here in in what rafe said but he's right it does have to come with with advocacy and so you know this isn't the uh the advocacy alert podcast but i would encourage everybody out there you know figure out figure out what little thing you can do figure out what email you can send to your city council figure out you know we all need to speak up or else we're we're silent right and literally and if you're silent then we're not going to get what you want so and and bike industry i will i will add that we have had i I would say never in my in in my recent memory or longer memory anyway can i remember a better opportunity to actually get cycling to grow and i've watched the bicycle industry kind of screw things up on that front time after time after time and i guess this is my plea to the bike industry to just please please not screw this up again because a lot of companies are raking in a fair bit of money right now and i would really love to see a good chunk of that money devoted to lobbying government bodies and that sort of thing instead of trying to develop a bike that shaves two seconds off my next 40k because i really don't care i'd really just much rather not get hit by a car i also want to see like really good 800 road bikes yes that would be really cool like i think that there needs to be a lot more attention spent on that you know we we tested that $1,000 giant uh, as part of the field test, the gravel bike, and it was a great bike, you know? Like, if there were more options like that, and particularly in the in the sort of road, like all-road kind of space, which I think is probably where a lot of these new riders are end, ending up, 
yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a huge, huge hurdle. I've got, you know, a friend of a friend. I just actually just sent him a bunch of, uh, like old test gear that, that was just sitting around. I needed to get out of my house. And normally we, we donate these things to, uh, James, you, you, you've been really good about donating them to, you know, youth charities and things like that. In this case, this kid felt like a charity. So, so I gave him a pair of shoes and a helmet and some kit and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but he was, he was like, I want a really nice bike. I've got 650 bucks. Like there needs to be an option for him to go become a roadie. Like he wanted to, you know, do this as an exercise. He didn't want to just piddle around town. He wanted to join, you know, my friends and I, when we go for morning rides and he needs to be able to do that. So that would be my other thing for the industry is like, if we're going to have all these new people, let's, let's focus on good, cheap bikes. We know it's possible. We absolutely know it's possible. Well, fingers crossed. We'll see what happens again. I'm not particularly optimistic, but you know, Hey, I've been wrong before. So we'll see. Uh, should we finish up with ask a mechanic? Let's do a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well, I have a whole pile of questions here, but I think I'm going to limit these to the very, very, very Dave related ones. <laughs> so <laughs> tools maybe is, is the topic. About tools? We are, are going to be tools? talking. We are going to be talking about tools, Dave tools. Oh, yay. Couple <laughs> questions. <laughs> yeah. Couple questions in particular, and why, and Dave, while you are answering this question, uh, Zach and Kaylee and I are going to go out and have a virtual taco and maybe some dessert or something, cause, and then we'll just kind of come back when you're done in an hour and a half. So, <laughs> um, so we are going to start with Velo Club member uh, Rob. I'm sorry, I'm going to completely butcher your name. Rob Wierzbowski, seems close enough, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and Zach, Zach, you can certainly feel free to chime in here because, because you would, you would qualify do, as well. I do use tools. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Probably do, more than do Dave does actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you actually specifically no, actually, get paid like, for how well you use tools. Of hex keys. <laughs> you know, you know, Dave, Dave, you joke about that, but I know you have a set of hex keys that you keep in your desk drawer. So <laughs> no, there it is. There it is. Holding them up to the yeah. screen. Yep. <laughs> anyway, Rob would like to know. Rob would like to know, what is the mechanic's preference? L-shaped hex keys, T-shaped hex keys, or a quarter-inch ratchet? <laughs> all of them. Zach? I, yeah, I use a mix of all of them, I would say. It depends on yeah. depends on what exactly I'm doing and even depends on the week. Some weeks I pretty much, for very much prefer T-handles, and then other days I really prefer just a normal Allen key. And then other days I've got four different quarter-inch ratchets out with each one set up with all the bits for the day. and. Yeah, it just kind of depends. Yeah, ditto. Yeah, oh, like, yeah, I think I think that's quite common amongst mechanics to have access to, like, three to four different styles, and they'll just, you know, in one bike repair, they'll just swap between them to, to what suits what they're doing. Yeah. I, I really prefer to use a, a multi-tool that, like closes every time I try to spin <laughs> it. That's that's mm-hmm. my go-to. I, yeah. I, I would argue that that's not your favorite. <laughs> I know your favorite. So there's these tools yeah. called a, so, a so yeah, three-way. if you're starting out L keys. <laughs> Triangle square. Uh, L keys are the way, but uh, but yeah, or a multi-tool, as Kaylee says. If yeah. you're... I would say, uh, I, personally, I L- hate three-ways. Don't use three-ways. I like three-ways, hmm. also known as triangle squares. <laughs> triangle squares? Yeah. Have I not told anyway, this story on this podcast before? I've, I've heard this story. No, I have never heard this story before, but now I am very intrigued about why oh, this I, is a triangle I just, square. I had a buddy in college who... 
called three-way Allen keys a triangle square, and I have no idea why. There's no square on it. There's no. There's nothing square about it anywhere. It's a hex. It is triangle triangular. Hex but anyway, he called it triangle square, and I thought it was funny, and so I just started calling him tri- triangle squares, and then I just caught myself calling the triangle squares to like regular people who didn't have any idea what I was talking about, like Zach. The first is- time he told me, do you or asked if I had a triangle square while he was working on a bike, I was just like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Kelly, I'm curious. Are you still able to be in touch with this person? Uh, I could be. Could you find this person on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. We're definitely Facebook friends. I haven't talked to him in years and years and years. But yeah. But but I feel like I feel like now we need to know the backstory behind the triangle square. I feel like we owe it to listeners. And if anything, I'm really curious to That's know why the hell him, this person called this thing a like triangle square. It's like someone that he used to work with at a bike shop also called it a triangle square. Yeah. Well, okay, it's hand, so been handed down. So I'm pretty sure I could be I could be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure it was my buddy Alex Racer who I went to college what a with. Good last name. Good race. Good good last name, right? Uh, went to college with and was a mechanic for a long time. Um, it was a it was a, like a team mechanic for a couple teams for a little while. And um, anyway, Alex or anyone who knows Alex, <laughs> reach out. I'd love to chat. I haven't talked to you in like a decade or almost a decade, uh, but I would, I'd love to and find out where triangle square came from. So just because this is the nerd alert podcast, I think I would like to just explain why use different, why we use different uh, hex keys in different places. Um, you know, to nerd out. Um, so yeah, the the L key, the issue there is that it can be quite slow to use and then where it is fast to use is in like, you know, the uh, using the long end to spin with um, doesn't have much leverage. So that's sort of why you, you move away from using L keys. So like a T handle has the leverage and it allows you, that leverage then acts as like a weight to then spin the, the hex key with. So you can be really fast with like stem bolts and areas with lots of clearance. Um, and then, yeah, like ratchets are really good where clearance is tight, where, you know, normally you'd have to take the tool in and out of the bolt. The ratchet just sort of speeds things up. So there's different tools, different purposes. Um, and that's why uh, you'll go, you know, if you look at any mechanics workbench, they'll never have just one, one type of X key. Dave, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, test your tool inventory here to see if you have this, because someone just mentioned to me, uh, I think it was yesterday that one of the tools that they really like to have are, uh, is like a sort of like a small screwdriver style hex key with like a rotating cap on the handle. And they like to use that for like, you know, rotating out stem bolts and extending and installing stem bolts, that kind of thing. Because in terms of just spinning bolts, that sort of thing is a lot quicker. I, I would imagine it'd be very handy for water bottle bolts as well. Do you have those in your tool chest? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Um, I use them a lot for flat mount disc brakes. Um, flat which, mount. Uh, yes. That, yes. That reminds me. That we still have to thing. have. We still have to have that rant episode where we just talk about all the bike mechanic things that we hate. We can do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I would say in regards to spinning things fast, I really like T handles because of that. But not if you just get like, I would say most of the bike company specific T handles, they're plastic handle. If you get a nice one that has metal inside a molded rubber, the handle is really heavy and it spins really really well. And then you can yeah. thread things in and out quickly. Yeah. Well, the, the, the plastic ones you're talking about are actually a P-handle. Right. Not all of them. Some of them. Again. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the T-handle is like where it's it's even from the left side to the right side. They're, they're uniform. So, um, yes. 
we can wrap that one up. Well, we're just going to segue into another tool-related question, though, and I think we'll, we'll we'll finish with this one. And um, Dave, I know you have an opinion on this. Anthony Mulholland from Dublin, Ireland, would like to know. He would like a recommendation for a good quality set of Allen keys and wrenches and Torx, too. He said he doesn't have the space for individual T-shaped ones. So he's probably looking for like a like an L key kit, I would think. But sounds like a multi. -tool. I know that you have. <laughs> oh yeah, Dave. Dave, I know you. You have checked out and probably own every single option that is available on the planet. What's your favorite? Uh, my absolute favorite still is PB Swiss, which uh, made in Switzerland. Hundred and forty year old company, actually. Um, yeah, just as far as the steel they use and. Um, just the general quality they're really tough to beat um most most professional mechanics sort of get you know five ten years use out of a out of a set of these which is five or ten years longer than what they get out of most other allen key sets so um yeah that that are they brand five is to tough ten to times beat. the price yes they are yeah <laughs> yep um so yeah it certainly it certainly does come with a price but i absolutely love them um the the downside to them is that they the l keys can be a little bit on the underside of things in terms of the sizing of the hex ends so um i actually really like that because you never have any issue with um getting them to fit any bolt but um but yeah that can some people don't like that and in that case there there are other options um Weera comes to mind as the the other popular option so you're saying that your favorite option is the tool that lasts far far longer than anything else you've used but also because it has because it tends to be undersized it'll probably likely also destroy every bolt that it hits no it, do it doesn't to be honest so um i initially thought that when i was spent a few weeks measuring hex keys for an article with a previous publication <laughs> um uh but uh no i've basically decided that it, it doesn't it's not an issue where where it is an issue is uh in bolts that are very soft uh, i've lost everyone <laughs> i think james is crying i mean we i mean i i remember when you wrote that article dave and you know i now have this mental image of you just sitting there at your workbench for weeks sitting there with a set of with a set of vernier calipers measuring allen wrenches. Thank you, micrometer. Oh, okay, well, yeah. you're still just sitting there measuring, you know, tool after tool after tool, and next thing you yeah. know, two weeks go by, and you you come out, and it like you realize that the the, the week. I've is grown changed. a beard. All you see are yeah. L shapes. <laughs> <laughs> this really ha explains uh, Dave Rome's productivity. Uh, in all in one in one nice complete package. <laughs> huh. yeah. Well, yeah. I think we're going to end the asking mechanic segment with that, but that does provide the perfect segue because given that Dave has atrocious productivity, clearly because he spends all his time measuring. Tools, I was lying about that. Actually, he's very, he's very productive. He is, he is hyper productive, hyper productive. But we need more. We actually need more. And seeing as how there is pretty much no juice left to be squeezed out of Dave and myself, seemingly. Cycling Tips is hiring a tech writer. Kaylee, what are we looking for here? Uh, I believe one of the things on the actual job description that we put on the internet was a world-class bullshit detector. We're really, we're really keen on a world-class bullshit detector because, well, frankly, that that's a lot of what 
there's modern a bullshit. There's a lot of bullshit. That's a, <laughs> that's a lot of what modern uh, tech writing is. The this position is it's I don't want to say entry level or junior, but it'll be basically you know it'll be reporting to you guys and certainly working with you too on just developing everything that we do on the tech editorial side. Um, so what we really want is somebody who's a massive bike nerd, but can also write pretty well, can take some photos, ideally is pretty decent in front of camera or could hop on this podcast and be relatively comfortable. Uh, I know I know this person's out there. One thing we're not, we didn't, we purposely did not add to the job description was any sort of, previous media experience requirement or you know a journalism degree from anywhere or anything like that and i think that's honestly because uh well the three of us here that are full-time cycling tip staffers did it do you guys have journalism degrees nope negative neither do i nope. i have a i have a bachelor's in microbiology and a master's in material science engineering neither of which i really use mm. yeah i i have a political science and uh, political science and history <laughs> so Again, not particularly useful to me anymore. Uh, no, but the, my point being is that we know that there's lots of talent out there. We know that the right person for us is out there. We we know that that person may or may not have a journalism degree or may or may not have ever worked in bike media before. Frankly, when we sat back and thought about the commonality between all of the tech writers within the entire industry that we like and respect, the most common feature was they'd all worked in a bike shop. That seems to be the thing above all. And because basically we want real world experience. We want you to be able to put stuff in context. We want somebody who's a, who's a talented communicator in whatever way that is, video, audio, written, et cetera. Uh, and we think that that person has got to be out there. So if you think that's you, send an email to tech at cyclingtips.com which uh, unfortunately for James goes to James and he, he will, he will sort through it and we'll be, we'll be sort of running through this process for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and if you have any questions about this role, you just want more information, more details before you, you know, bother putting together a, a resume and cover letter and things like that, just send me a note or send James a note or send Dave a note. You know, we're all on Twitter. Um, we're all on social media. Our emails are actually pretty easy to find as well. And uh, we're, we'll be happy to answer those questions for you before you, you dive all the way in. So we're pretty excited about this. Anytime, you know, this is a really small team at Cycling Tips. So anytime we add a full-time staffer, that's super exciting. And I know you two, Dave and James, I know you guys are excited. You're both going to have a minion. That's pretty fun. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. We need the help. <laughs> yeah, so we're super stoked about this, and we're going to hopefully get the whole process done in the next, I don't know, four to six weeks or something like that. So apply. I encourage, if you are even just wondering if you might fit, apply, because the person that we're looking for uh, may not be sort of the most traditional fit for a job like this. So send us an email. Is that it? That's it. Cool. Nailed it. Nailed it. Such an episode. <laughs> All right. Do you want, do you want another half an hour about my reasoning no, of why no, uh, the sizing no, of hex no, keys doesn't, that, doesn't no, play a factor? No. Turn, oh, turn off your Bondus. mic. Don't plug it. Best bang for your buck. B- Bondus? What's yeah. that? Bondus? Yeah, it absolutely best is. Bang for, yeah. Best bang for your buck. Yeah. The Silver Guard I, ones, which is their mid-level. Yeah. I use a set of Park Tool L-shaped Allen keys, at least three of which. Which are made by Bondus fell out and disappeared and so we're replaced with other 
random Allen keys from brands unknown, possibly <laughs> in like an Ikea box or something like that. Very Just high quality. Very high quality. <laughs> why That's why is my eye twitching? <laughs> that explains a lot, Kelly. That, ex- that explains a lot. It does. My, and- my general theory around this is that uh, if I'm going to lose the Allen keys anyway, I might as well not get the ones that are going to last me 10 years. Just get the ones that are going to last me and then one, when one you, year. When you strip the bolt, you bring it to me anyways. Exactly. And I have Zach. Ever, here's my actual recommendation. Get yourself a Zach. That's what everyone needs. <laughs> when you screw it up. I can't help everyone. <laughs> but get your own Zach. <laughs> Go find your own Zach. When you screw up, nowhere to take it. <laughs> all right. Well, on in the meantime, note. while you are all looking for your own Zach, again, feel free to apply. And otherwise, <laughs> thanks for listening to this show. Again, if you liked what you heard, please, please, please give us a rating or a review on iTunes because it really does help a lot of people find this podcast and just spread the word in general because it makes us happy. It makes us feel good. The sharing with your friends thing was effective last week. Uh, we saw a little bump. Sharing in, is little, caring. Sharing is caring. We saw a little bump in listenership. Uh, we should say that there's a bit of an internal competition here. We want this podcast to take over the main weekly podcast. That's that's my goal anyway, even though I'm on both of them. I I would love this one to take over. Do we get to start talking about bike racing? No. <laughs> no. No, we are definitely not going to be talking about bike racing here. But that's we, nope. we have a vested interest in this because we really, we, we, we want to be number one. The Nerd Alert podcast needs to be number one. So, so spread the word. Spread the word because I would like bragging rights. So thanks again. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Ciao.